You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. I'm super excited for today's interview with the one and only Ken McElroy. Ken has experienced massive success in real estate with over 10,000 doors and over $750 million invested in his projects. He's the author of the best-selling books, The ABCs of Real Estate Investing, The Advanced Guide to Real Estate Investing, and The ABCs of Property Management. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Rich and I have had the great honor of getting to know Ken a little bit, and we got to visit him at his lake house this summer. And I asked him if I could interview him live for The Real Wealth Show, and he agreed. I had a lot of really big and important questions to ask, given where we are at the tail end of this economic cycle. And I wanted to find out exactly how he's preparing for it. And I got some great insight that I can't wait to share with you here on The Real Wealth Show. So here's the interview with Ken McElroy. Ken McElroy, yes. welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thank you. Thank you. It's truly an honor. So since I began The Real Wealth Show, we brought in, it's been my goal to be able to interview people that normally I would never have the chance to, to, to meet with. So let's start with just how you got started as a master apartment owner. Yeah. So I completely fell into the apartment world as a senior in college. So okay. wow. I became an on-site manager. So I was living in Seattle and a friend of mine who was working for a big property management company up in Seattle area said, Hey, you know, do you want to manage this apartment building? Well, luckily my dad was a contractor, so I knew how to fix stuff. You know, he was um, in the construction battalion, a CB in the Navy. And so I grew up around, you know, he could do plumbing, electrical, framing, drywall. So I, and I could do all that stuff too, because that's what I did. Yeah. And so I knew that, but I didn't know anything else, right? So the guy's like, oh, it's easy. All you got to do is collect rent, right? Yeah, so, easy. so anyway, and he goes, uh, and it's free rent. Ooh, I'm like, oh, okay. okay. I think, you know, I'm like, <laughs> free rent. Actually, I think it was free rent plus $300 a month or something, wow. right? But I didn't realize that, that was probably a bargain because it was a lot of work. It was a 60 unit building, tons of work. An owner had bought it. And, um, same thing, you know, like the guy was trying to make it cash flow, keep the occupancy high, but I didn't understand all this. Even, you know, I didn't get it, but I would collect the rents and I would get all the bills and things were happening. And then I started slowly to understand financials and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So luckily I had that real world education. It was almost like an internship. Yeah. if you will. But I was living there and the owner would come up and, you know, we'd go over the numbers and just like I do now with my people. And I'm like, one day, uh, I remember too, I remember he pulled up in his Mercedes <laughs> and I, you know, I just, yeah, I knew he was coming. And so, you know, how you polish the place up and make it all look good. And you got all this stuff together. And I'm like, I am on the wrong side of the desk here. <laughs> Swear to God. I was like, I don't know. So I got my real estate license. And I started managing property for a local real estate uh, investor developer in Seattle. And I ended up managing about 20,000 units. Wow. And uh, I was with them for about eight years. And so what was great uh, being in, in that fee management business was we would take on a property and I could see the complexity of it, you know, the debt and the, the expenses and where it was and was located and the people and all that stuff. So I got, I got a great opportunity to be able to, to run hundreds of properties in that eight year period that were owned by somebody else. And I was uh, hiring people, hiring contractors, 
you know, paying the bills, looking at the financials, sending them to the owners, meeting with the owners, looking at the distributions and all that kind of stuff. And that's actually what, how I got it. You know, that's how, that's actually how I understood. And so one day, one of the buddy, one of the guys that worked there and I said, Hey, why don't we like do this on our own? You know, like these guys that were, they were really nice people, these investors. And I said, this isn't that hard. Because what we were, we were, we were taking on properties that a lot of times needed lots of work. Yeah. And sometimes they were ground up construction. Sometimes they were really, really old, like a hundred year old properties. And sometimes they were just 50% occupied. And sometimes they were a hundred percent occupied. Just all this experience, you know, at that time and uh, all over the place. So I was traveling to Phoenix and Las Vegas and California and Denver. And as our company was expanding and we just decided to start on our own. So that's, uh, that was my only job. And um, I ended up starting a property management company basically in the early 90s. And, uh, and then from there, I just figured out that I better probably buy these. And I yeah. started buying them, started buying small ones, big ones and developing. And now we've got 10,000 units, a billion dollars worth of real estate and, you know, 300 employees. Amazing. So today, it's an interesting market, right? Every, yeah. It seems like... In 2005, people were really excited about multifamily. Then the downturn happened. A lot of people lost those buildings. Uh, and now there's a lot of people who got in at the right time, right? They, they learned about multifamily in maybe 2010, 2011, maybe, maybe even just a year ago or two years ago. And they've been riding an up market. They haven't experienced the down market. And they've learned certain things, important things, but they haven't learned other important things. So what are, what are some of the mistakes you're seeing new apartment owners making today? That's a great question. I think one of the biggest things, we just sold $300 million worth of stuff in 2018 and early 2019. And we sold 10 properties at an average capitalization rate or cap rate of 4.4. That was the average. Mm-hmm. And what I did before I even put those on the market was I went to my management company and I said, what do you think our net operating income growth, our rent growth and our expense growth and all that stuff, what do you think these are going to cash flow over the next three years? Mm-hmm. You know, so first we went there to my internal management company, which we own, and they came back and said, we think this is what it's going to be. And then I was looking at cap rates at the time, mm-hmm. which uh, were uh, mid fives. And I said, okay, so... So you, when you put your cap rate onto your net operating income, you have your value, as you know. So I said, well, so where do we think capitalization rates are going to be based on investors? You know, and, and what happens at the tail end of every real estate market is the, the big money comes in, the institutions, yes. you know, yeah. all the, you know, the managed money, you, let's and they call have it. different needs. They do have different needs. And um, so that happens every time. Like guys, like people, like like you and I, we're at the beginning of everything and we're trying to get the ride up and we're trying to sell them to those people, right? Yeah. But that's when it all gets the hype is later, you know, when all the big money comes in. So yeah, just understanding all of that, I said, well, let's package these 10 deals. And we hired CBRE and they did a big national campaign. It was called the MC Portfolio. And we put it out and we got 45 offers and it was wow. like sharks, like just going at it. And all the cap rates were, as I said, were 4.4. And so to answer your question, I think the biggest mistake, because we sold all of those at 4.4, period. Somebody bought them. Yeah. I, I know how they run. I know if there is value add. I know, obviously, we, we, we sold them all. We know, we understand them. 
Somebody believes that they can run them better or grow the cash flow. But remember, I starting at the beginning of the story, I already talked about the NOI or the net operating income growth. I already know what those things are going to produce for the next three years, really through 2021. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, but the biggest issue we have are what I call exit cap rates. And the, I was just uh, at a meeting with Goldman Sachs in, in May at their headquarters in New York. And this is the entire discussion. What's the exit cap rate? So if you buy something at 4.4 and it goes to 5.4, you have to have a 25% income growth yeah. to break even. Right. So exit cap rates are really super important because 4.4 is low. And if they go up just 1%, it doesn't really matter how you run the building. Yeah. You have to have a 25% net operating income growth just to break even, just to get what the property's worth. So the exit cap rate, I think, is the one thing that I'm watching the most uh, to answer your question. I think that's the biggest mistake people are making. I'm going to ask a really uh, naive question, and that is, who determines that exit cap rate? I mean, how, how, how is that done? It's just the buyer. Just what somebody will pay. Just, just like, that's what I love about it. Like okay. it's, it's as natural as the market should be. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so what is it actually going to be worth? So uh, just as an example, let's say we sold something at $20 million and that cap rate was 4.4 and our net operating income was maybe $600,000. let us mm-hmm. just say. I'm just making these up, but let's just yeah. say. Even if they grow the cash flow to 700000 the the property could be worth eighteen million. But but again, what would cause that cap rate to increase? Uh, cash flow, yeah, cash flow. Because rents went down in the area. Well, or? not necessarily. Uh, you know, the cost of debt, um, okay. occupancy, for example. You know what I mean? So for us, we were like, you know, I and honestly, you know, a stock market crash or, you know, real estate crash or anything like that brings everything down, right? Sure. So if there was some kind of a recession. Some kind of something, yeah. And so, yeah. And so the way we looked at it was, you know, we've made enough money. We'd own these properties five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And, you know, maybe we're not at the top. And I never really try to time the top anyway. Mm-hmm. And we'll just sell into the top whenever that is. But for sure, you know, we're going to see some kind of correction. So. And I, I told the story, you know, you and I were talking before about the, the buyer that was buying something I was selling. And then I saw their package, you know, as they were soliciting me to invest in the new deal, which is a deal that I owned. And they had spun it. You know, they said, oh, we, we see $200 rent growth um, in every single unit. Well, I had already checked that before. I knew, you know, we were trying to raise rents 30, 50, couldn't, you know, we're trying like the next renter. Let's see if we can get 50 bucks. Let's see if we can get, you know, we were hitting the ceiling in Houston on that particular property, but they were showing it was 200. So all, I think all that's going to happen. It's going to start coming up. I just want to slow down for a minute so people really hear what you just said. That Ken McElroy, that you are the expert of experts when it comes to multifamily. You had a property that you really had, had squeezed out as much cash flow as you could, right? And you know all the ways to do that. But somebody else bought it from you and told their investors that they could squeeze more cash flow. That they could have $200 more per unit in rent growth. How? How did they think they were going to do that? They were going to put $10,000 a unit into the property. But, and we had already done that. You know, I don't sell anything if there's value add. 
So, yeah. right? I'd rather do that myself. Yeah. So we, we actually put in new kitchens, new flooring, new this, new that, made everything amazing. And we had market resistance in Houston on the rent. Yeah. And so we, we spent not very much, like 40, 50,000 bucks on four or five units. And we saw that we couldn't raise rents anymore on that particular asset. I, I think you just nailed a really key point there. Market resistance, which in other words, people hit the max of what they can afford. Yeah. Right? Correct. So how do you know what that max is when you're buying? Or let's say the investor who invested in this person's deal, how would they do their research to know that it's not possible to raise the rents anymore? Yeah. Well, that's the greatest question. How does an investor know? The investor has to trust the sponsor and their experience, number one. But uh, what we do is we provide rent surveys and you do have the opportunity to check those out. So for us in this particular property, this was a nice property. It's built in the mid nineties. Beautiful elevator, really, really nice. And so you got to go out and look at the four or five comps in the area and kind of see where you fit, right? As it relates to all of those. And there's only, you know, because I've done a lot of class A new construction, I'm always afraid because when you're building something brand new and you're dropping it in a market and you're a hundred, 200 above everything else in the market, you better make sure that you hit those numbers, right? And how do you really know? if something brand new is going to be more than something that's really nice right next door. And so I'm always watching the market resistance. And so what we did is we did renovations on the property internally first to see, you know, is there any value add for our investors? Because why would we want to sell somebody something that we have I wouldn't want to sell anybody a value-add project because that's not what I'm looking for, right? right. So we felt like we had done everything we could to see where the resistance was in that that particular market at the time, which was about eight months ago, nine months ago. And so uh, what was really neat to see was the whole evolution of it all, that the new buyers said, ah, we got $200 of rent growth. And so you take $200 of rent growth times 200 units, that's $250,000 in NOI growth, you can make a value add all day long. You know what I mean? Just by the magic of numbers. Do you know if they achieved it? I don't. Well, it's brand new. We just sold it. So we sold it beginning in 2019. And uh, so we'll see. But the reverse is possible as well, where maybe too many units come online. Too many, you know, you've got to be aware of who's building and how many units. And there's a lot of units being built in in Houston and Dallas and Seattle and and New York and San Francisco. And people don't pay attention to that, but that would affect it. 100%. Well, that's why we got out of Austin. So Austin is one of the hottest markets in the country for multifamily. I started buying in early 2000s there. And, you know, that whole area from the lake up through Congress area, uh, which is kind of goes north, uh, well, actually goes north and south all the way back towards San Antonio, tons of units being built. And so I owned a bunch of stuff. But when you've got three, four, five thousand dollars or five thousand units being added to, you know, a five mile square, you know, area, it's it's definitely going to affect the rents. And so that was one of the factors, too, is. New construction was coming. And so you think about somebody who opens a 200-unit building, they're 100% vacant on day one. Yeah. So for them to be able to go one month free, two months free, we just need warm bodies with good credit. 
they could annihilate a market very quickly by um, doing lots of these incentives right out of the gate. And it'll affect all the surrounding projects for sure. Because if you live in something that's 20 years old, you want to be in something new, especially if they're doing one month free on a 12 month lease, because really now your rent's the same. So you had about a billion dollars worth of property sold off about 300? Yeah, we have about 700 now. So why did you keep those? And why did you, because you had an offer for all of it. Yeah, right? we you did. Just be a billionaire on, um, you know, Lake Quarterly, Lake Quarterly. Well, at this point, it's all about managing your money. So for me, we had 7,000 units with super low leverage, mm-hmm. you know, yep. hardly, uh, you know, like 50% loan to value, massive cash flow. We returned a lot of the capital. So most of that money that we raised or syndicated had been returned back. But through a refi? Yes, okay. through a cash out refi. And so we don't really have a lot of debt on it. So you got massive cash flow. We have hardly any debt. We can always put new debt on if we need money. Investors have their capital back. They have their capital back. And so we were looking at a huge capital gain issue, Mm -hmm. a huge depreciation recapture issue. And then also, once you have all that money, because I have friends that have done this, they've sold their businesses or sold, you know, big portfolios or something. Then they're trying to place it again anyway. You know, they're like, okay, (laughs) do we give it to a financial planner? (laughs) You know, you have to trust someone else. Right, 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 right. So we're like, okay, well, we got, you know, and don't forget (laughs) on the ones that have mortgages, well, all of them have some kind of a mortgage. The tenants are paying those down. So we have, I think we calculated that just in mortgage pay down, our portfolio was growing by 25 million a year. Oh my gosh. Just in mortgage pay down. Oh, wow. Wow. So those are tenants paying off our, all the mortgages, you know, that are, you know what I mean? So just in that, so we're getting 25 million a year, our investment on my investors, just in that. So just by holding it, and then you get all the tax benefits, but then we had the tax issue of capital gain and all that. So at the end of the day, uh, that's why we decided to stay. Oh, gosh, I could talk to you forever. And we are actually starting a mentor's. And it's called a master's table. It's like a mastermind to be able to sit with the greatest of the great to um, really be able to get wise advice. I hope I'll be able to talk you into being a part of that. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> and if anyone wants to find out about that, you can certainly reach out to us at realwealthshow.com. What concerns me so much, and I'm, I'm invited to lots of masterminds, and I, I meet a lot of young people who have raised millions of dollars, and I've only been in real estate for a couple of years. What should syndicators really be paying attention to who are new to this? Because, I mean, you just, you already said Yeah, well, I will, I'll I'll just make another point. I think a lot of times syndicators are, um, are in it for the fees. So, in other words, when you raise money and you put it into something, you get paid a fair amount of money up front, and hopefully it's all disclosed. Yeah. Um, their acquisition fees and stuff like that. I think a lot of people are doing it to pay bills and, and to get into the industry and understand it. And you and I are doing it quite differently. We're doing it to make money for our investors. I only get paid after our investors are paid back. Mm-hmm. So if, if I take $10 million, and usually I'm inside of that too, and I invest it, only when that equity is returned do I make money. So I don't make money. I don't take a money um, while the property is is being added value. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. so a lot of these syndicators, it, it's not hard to raise money, right? in my opinion. 
Yeah. It's actually not hard at all. Yeah. Um, the hardest today, part, man. no, That's no, 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 no. I mean, as you know, like, so the, the hardest part is finding the right deal that cash flows and makes money. And so I think yeah. what happens is a lot of these, so you got to look at the syndicator themselves and look at their track record. But a lot of them are just doing it to make, you know, it's, Jeez. it's, uh, as Robert, as you know, my good friend Robert Kiyosaki says, they're, they're working for tips. You, I love that you brought this up because I didn't know that. I just intuitively, it made sense to me when we started syndicating, when developers would bring me these projects, and they were amazing projects. I mean, the developers that we started working with um, had ins with the bank. Uh, the banks, I've, I've recently learned how, how it all works when there's a recession. If you've taken on a bank loan and you cannot make those payments, I mean, it's yeah. obvious. But, you know, the bank has to foreclose. It's, it's like by law, they have to. They have to have a certain amount of reserves and they can't have these bad loans on their books. They have to foreclose on you. And then after that, they, they get to write it off. They get yeah. to write down the debt. So it really doesn't cost them anything to do that. And then they get to sell the asset. Right. Yeah. And then they, they, that's, that's all profit and, and it's commission based. So these developers were coming to me who've been through this every down cycle. They're the guy that the asset managers call. And, and it's just basically at that point, make a deal. That's right. right. That's so exactly there was a $160 million property in Florida that we got for 16 million. Yep. Because they didn't know what to, what to do with it. So when, when these developers came to me with these deals, I didn't really, I hadn't syndicated. I didn't really know them, but they had a massive track record. So there was immediate trust there. These are people with private jets and, you know, beautiful homes. They don't, they don't necessarily want to lose by doing the wrong deal. They don't want to start over. So uh, the track record impressed me and we were, we were willing to, to try it out. But the first thing I said is, I don't want to see you making a penny until the investors make a profit. Right. And if you say that they're going to get a 15% return, then let's put it in writing. Let's have that preferred return be 15%, which basically means they're going to get their preferred first. You get what's left over. Right. And then that split after the investors get the 15%. Then it's, it's heavily weighed to the developer, yeah. which is different than other people's deals. Like sometimes our developers will get 70% of, of the, <clears throat> the leftover, but that's after the investors have gotten their split. Whereas you'll see in a lot of other people's deals, it's maybe a 6% preferred, but then the split is heavier to the investor, maybe 70% to the investor, but there might not be anything left. That's right. Because of the fees, <clears throat> all the fees along exactly the way. Right. Then really all the investors getting 6% if they're lucky. Right. So I know we do it a little bit different, but it's for the same reason. It's like, don't tell me that it's going to make this kind of profit. Um, and, and let's hope for that. Let's guarantee, you can't guarantee it, but let's assure that yeah. nobody's getting paid till the investor gets what you said they were going to get. That's actually the most successful syndicators out there put the investor first. Yeah. Um, and in our world, it's called the waterfall. Yes. So the first person that gets paid is the bank or the, you know, the loan. Mm -hmm. The second person is the investor. Yes. And then you get paid after that. When you've proven yourself. Correct. Right, right. And I like that model. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair because you're using other people's money to yeah. make money. Yeah. And you got to put your money where your mouth is. The other thing that we do is we put our own money in. And I'm sure you do too. So, you know, so if we raise 10 million bucks, we're right alongside of that as an LP or a limited partner on every single deal. So we're invested our own cash, but we're also on the GP side, which is the GP side is where all the upside is. 
So we're only investing in things that really have a big upside on the GP because that's actually where I make all my money. I want to have my investment along everybody else's, but if it really kills it, which we've had some happen, um, then that's where the big money is. It's over here on the GP side after the waterfall, at the end of the waterfall, you know. I've been hearing a lot of people say that they're doing a 70-30 split with no preferred. They're like, hey, we're in it with the investors. If We're just going to all make money together. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, that's kind of where we are in the market. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, in the beginning of raising capital, it wasn't like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You won't find that. You'll find that money at a small level, you know, at the non-sophisticated credit investor, let's say, might do something like that. Um, but I like the preferred return model, personally. Yeah. Uh, it puts pressure on me. Yeah. You know, it puts pressure on my management team. It puts pressure on the business plan. And so I've seen those, you know, and nothing wrong with that, I guess. But, um, it, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a goofy way for an investor to invest. Yeah. It seems unnecessary. But anyway, okay. Any last tips for where we are in this cycle and how people can just be prepared for what's coming? And what do you think is coming? Um, well, I, I, I think we've had, what, 10 years of expansion. Um, interest rates are going down again. So I think we've probably got a little more life in the real estate market personally. Yeah. I think people should always just focus on cash flow and not necessarily capital gain. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm a big proponent of that and I teach that. Um, because I've been through a couple downturns and, um, you know, we were in the condo business where we did a several thousand condos projects. And, um, you know, when the buyer stopped, it was like, Within a month, yeah, gone. And it goes quickly. It goes really quickly, yeah. and it's here like that. And so I would just say, be careful of personal guarantees. Try to get in and out, like you said. Have that free and clear, yeah. so you're not. Um, and then uh, set yourself up with on a cash flow basis, so that you don't have to do deal to survive. I feel like that's what a lot of syndicators are doing, mm-hmm. is that they're raising money to pay bills and their overhead and all that kind of stuff. And they're not really focused on the, on the, on the actual financial returns of the actual deal. And maybe they are. Maybe they really believe it. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I've talked to it's a hard lot to of know. institutional people and it's all about, uh, I mean, it's all about fees. So they have to constantly it, be. It appears um, to be. Well, you, you get an acquisition fee and you get a disposition fee. Yeah. So that means you're going to want to buy and sell, right? right? That's where you're making the money. Right. And it's not, I think you even mentioned that there was an institutional uh, company that came to you and wanted to buy and you're kind of wondering why they wanted, right? Blackstone. Yeah. 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 Uh, they were huge, obviously huge. Yeah. They're, they're going to be a close to a trillion dollars under management, uh, before long and, and they're massive. And, um, Goldman Sachs brought us to them. And I was like, okay, I know a lot about what I'm doing, but what am I missing? And I'll tell you, I got the best advice ever from a friend of mine, uh, in this YPO group that I'm in. And he's, um, he's an M&A guy. So he, he's like, just know one thing. He goes, uh, when you're sitting in a room with a bunch of guys from Blackstone, you're the dumbest one in the room. (laughs) (laughs) He said that. And I go, really? He's like, absolutely. He goes, they, they know more. So you got to figure that out. What, what is it that they know that you don't know? And so that whole experience was great going to New York and figuring all that and getting an NDA and working through and we had a war room and we were negotiating and all that kind of stuff. But I always had that in the back of my mind, you know what I mean? Yeah. And at the end, we walked away from it. Yeah. And what they wanted was the depreciation that the, the, they were stepping into a huge cash flow portfolio. 
um, you know, what they wanted was what we already had and what everybody wanted. So you're like, why am I selling? Yeah, why would I sell, you know, just to get <laughs> right. that equity, right? Right. So, and then pay tax on it all. So yeah. at the end, we walked away from it. All right, Ken, well, thank you for of course. doing this and thank you for inviting Rich and me to your beautiful home here. That's awesome. You guys are the best. We've had some fun. Super fun. So let's go. Let's go do that. Let's go have some okay. fun. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can listen to this and any past shows at realwealthshow.com.